we're often being perceived much more positively than we think we are. And people really aren't picking apart our speech and the way we delivered it and the way that we expect they are. Instead, people really just get the gist of what we're saying. You know, they hear like, okay, Vanessa thinks this, you know, she made a case for this. And they're not like, but she said this very specific thing, right? They're just not thinking like that. Welcome to the Big Careers and Small Children podcast, formerly known as Leaders with Babies podcast. My name is Verena Hefti. I am the CEO and founder of the Social Enterprise Leaders Plus. And the frequent listeners of this podcast know that I've set up this podcast on our award-winning Leaders Plus membership program because I want to give you access to inspiration and practical support so you can continue to progress your leadership career whilst enjoying your young children in a way that works for you. And today's podcast guest is the extremely interesting Professor Vanessa Bonds. I've followed her for a while on Twitter and then finally was able to convince her. (laughs) I guess I followed her medicine. In her book she gives quite a few tips about how to ask people for stuff you want. I wanted her on so I used those tips on her. But yeah, she's very interesting. She's professor at Cornell University and a social psychologist. She has written the very thought-provoking book, You Have More Influence Than You Think. And we talk about influencing someone to accept a suggestion, for example, your flexible working requests. We talked about how she has changed her own approach to asking for stuff as a result of her research. And we have a frank conversation about the power that we have and the responsibility that comes with it. Thank you so much to everybody who's got in touch regarding the Leaders Plus Fellowship Programme. Unfortunately, applications have now closed with more applicants than ever before, but we will open again in 2023. So, But in the meantime, if you want to be kept informed about anything else that we are doing, including some of our events, then go to leadersplus.org.uk forward slash newsletter and you'll get access to a monthly newsletter where we're sending out new ideas to try new things that you might want to think about and also any updates on our events and so on. And now on to today's conversation. A very warm welcome, Vanessa, to the podcast. I am thrilled to have you here after I absolutely loved your book on our book club. Why don't we start with you telling us who you are, what you do for your work and who's in your family? Sure. And thank you so much for having me and for the lovely words about my book. So I am a professor at Cornell University and I teach organizational behavior, basically the psychology of work. And I have two littles, a three-year-old and a seven-year-old, two daughters. And I live with my husband as well. And I will say, you know, one thing especially in this context that I think is probably relevant is I'm now a tenured professor. So over the past, you know, however many years, you know, 10 years at this point, I think I, you know, went from being an untenured professor and eventually got tenure and a lot of like family planning decisions were around that point, getting tenure and then feeling like I could have a second kid. And a lot of sort of the pressures, I think, of trying to make it in my field have shifted since getting tenure and kind of balancing work and life. So I think that's probably something worth mentioning. But yeah, that's who I am. Oh, and I wrote the book. Yes, you did write the book. Do you actually say what the title of the book is? I wrote the book, You Have More Influence Than You Think. During the pandemic with my, you know, then one and six-year-old or one and five-year-old, soon to be two and six-year-old at home with everything shut down. 
<laughs> and it turned out to be a very good book, I would say. So that <laughs> one and six year old have clearly done very well or watched incredibly good TV. Yes. Oh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> oh, wonderful. And we should probably say for the people who are not in the US, so tenure means your job is safe, while before tenure, it means you're still having to prove yourself and having to get a permanent position. Is that fair? That is right. Yes. I forgot the European model is different. So you're, you have lecturer positions instead and things like that. So yes. So you have about, depending on the school, five years on what we call the tenure track, where you're still technically on a probationary period. And so you're kind of assessed at the end of that and you're either basically fired or promoted to having this job security. And so that tends to be a period a lot of people sort of plan around is that five to six to seven year tenure clock. Interesting. So as you know, part of the ethos of this podcast is to support career progression of parents. And I'm really interested, this only just occurred to me now, I imagine writing the book, which is obviously a book for people like me who are not academics, that is aimed, that is not helping you in your academic career. So you decided to write that after you got tenure. Is that right? Kind of. You know, it depends on the school. This is one of these things that's a little bit arbitrary. And tenure varies from school to school. And it varies depending on, you know, the people who are making the official decision. So I'd say I did wait till after tenure to write that book because it's, as you mentioned, more of like a pop science kind of or pop psychology type book which doesn't necessarily count. But at the same time, they do like for you to have kind of a a big splash popular book where people start to learn your name. And so it's unclear. It wouldn't have counted for my research, which is like the main reason you get tenure is based on your research. But it could help in things like name recognition and them saying like, oh, look, this person is well known outside of the field. And so it's unclear whether it would help or hurt. Interesting. So actually, you've done a brave thing, which you sometimes have to do in your career trajectory, isn't it, to do something different? And it ended up being a very, very interesting book. But can you, I've said it's interesting a number of times, but maybe it's worth you just telling us what is the key message of the book? Yes, absolutely. And so, I mean, I will say part of the reason I wrote it also is just because it was fun. Like I just wanted to write about all these fun studies I had done or read about and this kind of empowering, reassuring kind of message, which I feel like is not, empirically supported in a lot of books, you know, like people put it out there, but it's not like here are some actual studies showing that in this case, you actually do have more influence than you think. And so the studies I talk about show basically that people pay more attention to you than you think. So for example, just by showing up at a meeting, just by being in the audience of a meeting or a talk or something, you can shape how the discussion goes and you can actually have impact even if you never say a thing. I show that people judge us less for kind of our foibles and our inarticulate moments and all these things than we tend to think that they do. And we wind up being much more persuasive than we think that we are, in part because people aren't sort of picking apart our arguments in the way we expect that they are. And I show that you can get things more readily than you think because people are more likely to do things for you when you ask for them than we tend to expect. And the first half of the book is kind of like, as I mentioned, an empowering, kind of reassuring, like, oh, wow, all this stuff means I have so much more influence. And that's such a a great, happy kind of thing to walk away with. And the second half of the book is a little bit more complex where it says, you know, if this is all true, then, you know, that means we have a certain amount of responsibility for the influence we wield. And we want to make sure we don't influence people negatively in ways we'd rather not. 
And that was such a powerful part of the book um, for me. But you mentioned about the influence that we have by just turning up and not even saying anything. And in a way, that's a bit of a problem as well, because if we don't have enough women, which at the moment we really don't have enough women in senior leadership, there's been some good data recently in the UK, for example, around boards. But when you go below that, at senior executive directors, huge, huge underrepresentation of women. What do you think is the impact of the discussions of those women not being in the room? Yeah, I mean, you can imagine sort of, I'm thinking of these pictures that get posted sometimes online where they have a boardroom of almost all white men, right? And you can imagine if they're talking about a topic, looking around at a room of people just like them, what identity is salient, right? What issues are coming to mind? Simply because we're humans and we look around and we want to impress the people around us and we want them to like us. And so we bring up the things that we think they'd be interested in. And so if I'm staring out at a, a you know a field of white male faces, I'm going to think, okay, what do these people care about, right? If you just have a few women and the more, you know, the better, right, on like a board and these kinds of meetings, now you're looking up a more gender diverse kind of, you know, group of people and different things might come to mind. So just by looking out and wanting to impress and, you know, get people to like you, and even just by what comes top of mind, a lot of human psychology is like, what's top of mind right now is what you talk about, right? Simply looking out and seeing different types of faces can change the things that become top of mind, the things we think people want to hear. And so we talk about things differently, and that can fundamentally shape a discussion. So I mean, to try to make it a little more concrete, you could think of a discussion about benefits, right? And if I'm looking out at a sea of white male faces, I may, things like maternity benefits may be the furthest from my mind, right? But now I'm looking out at, you know, some women interspersed in there and I think, oh yeah, maybe we should talk about that as well. And all of a sudden that becomes part of the conversation. And so that can happen even if those people don't say a thing simply by the fact that we try to tune our messages to what we think the people around us want to hear. Interesting. And there was something about, like you said, how people are perceived when, and I think the topic of imposter syndrome is coming up again and again. When you, let's say someone is listening to this who does feel really worried about standing up in front of people, maybe going and doing a presentation to the board, something that I have not done before. What does the research tell us? What do they have to be scared of, if anything? And what do they not have to be scared of? I think this is probably the most reassuring part of the book for me personally, because I have always hated, believe it or not, I'm a professor who, you know, lectures to 200 students regularly, but I've always hated speaking up in meetings because I just always feel like I'm so inarticulate and I don't make my point and I just feel like all the eyes are on me and I'm being judged. But it turns out, and this is what I remind myself of whenever I'm in those situations, it turns out that people are much less hard on us than we are on ourselves. It's similar to that expression they have about not comparing your insides to other people's outsides. So if we stand up and give a presentation, or if we you know, make a comment in a meeting, in our heads, we're hearing all the things that we feel like we didn't say quite right. We're hearing you know, our voice shake. We're feeling any anxiety we might be feeling. We're kind of perceiving ourselves in a very different way than everybody else. And then when we see somebody else make a comment or get up and speak, all we see is their outsides, right? We just hear kind of the gist of what they're saying. We're not paying a ton of attention to, you know, whether they said it perfectly. We don't know how anxious they feel. We don't notice a lot of the things that they feel like they're messing up 
on. And then we compare ourselves and we think, oh, wow, they did such a better job than us. But in fact, everybody else is looking at us in the same way. And I think it does relate to imposter syndrome. A lot of people bring up imposter syndrome when they read my book. And I think it is you know, that aspect. Again, we look out and see everybody else doing a great job because we don't judge people in the kind of harsh detail we expect that they're judging us. But in fact, that's true for us as well, right? People are not judging us that way either. And so in fact, we're often being perceived much more positively than we think we are. And people really aren't picking apart our speech and the way we delivered it and the way that we expect they are. Instead, people really just get the gist of what we're saying. You know, they hear like, okay, Vanessa thinks this, you know, she made a case for this. And they're not like, but she said this very specific thing, right? They're just not thinking like that. And yet we worry that they are. That is so reassuring to hear. And is that what prompted you to write the book initially when you came up with the idea or or what made you? write this book? You know, the book actually started, I guess in some ways, I could say it started as early as, you know, I was being asked to speak in public, I guess, because I have always kind of had this fear that, you know, I'm being judged more harshly than I am. So in some ways, maybe as soon as I started reassuring myself, I kind of started writing this book in my head. But I'd say the sort of more formal, official start of the book would have been when I started this research in graduate school, when I was working with a professor and we had to collect data for a study. And so I was in New York City and we were trying to get sort of everyday people, you know, adults, not just college students. And so I would go from Columbia University up on the north end of Manhattan and go down to Penn Station every day and ask people to fill out a survey. And so I would go up to people and be like, will you fill out a questionnaire? You know, they would say yes or no. They'd fill out my questionnaire. And I did this day after day and just found it totally horrific. Like I just hated asking people for things. And I still have a lot of anxiety in Penn Station because it's like associated with this task. But then, you know, I took this data back to the professor I was working with, Frank Flynn at Columbia. And we were looking at the data and our original idea for the study didn't work out. And so I was really bummed about that. And I was like, I just can't believe this was such a horrible experience. I can't believe I did all that. And we wound up with nothing. And he was kind of looking at the data and he was like, you know, you're describing this awful experience where everyone's rejecting you. But you look at this and most people are saying yes to you when you ask them to fill a questionnaire. And as we discussed that, we kind of came up with this different idea from our original hypothesis, which is that how we think we're coming across in our heads or how influential we think we're being, right, is very different from the reality. So in my head, each time I went up to someone, I was sure they were going to say no. I was so focused on the rejection and the, the few rejections I did get, you know, loomed so much larger than all the people who were saying yes. But in fact, people were more likely to say yes to me than I thought. And so we started running studies where we had participants come into the lab and we sent them out to ask people for things and guess how likely people would be to agree And we found that they had the same experience. They thought people would reject them about twice as much as they actually did. And so that was the beginning of this line of research. And then I started to see kind of echoes of a similar thing in other people's research. This idea that people, you know, pay more attention to us than we realize, like us more than we think. And so I kind of wanted to put it all together in a book, mostly to reassure people, but then also, as I said, to sort of highlight the responsibility that comes with having more influence. Yeah, it's interesting. It also made me think about 
generally asking for stuff. So, so let's say for asking for promotions or in, in the UK, there's something called a fle- form of flexible working request, which is you go up to your boss and you submit a paper that says, I would like to work three days a week. Can you please consider it? And your boss has to respond to that. And quite often people are quite anxious about that and think that it will be rejected. And of course, some people do get rejected. But what you're saying is that the research is that actually you're less likely to be rejected than you think. Yeah, the research does show that. And it doesn't mean that you won't be rejected. You know, of course, people get rejected. But we kind of build up the idea of rejection so much in our heads and have so much anxiety around it and are so fearful of that no, that it becomes a bigger possibility than it really is. And so we exaggerate the likelihood of being rejected The other thing we exaggerate is how much we'll be judged for asking, right? So even if you get a no, it's not a bad thing that you ask necessarily. But we tend to think that, oh my God, they said no. Now they must hate me or they must think something terrible about me. When in fact, for the most part, people you know, aren't judging you for asking for something. And so what's the implication? So if we think about more parents, say, getting the work arrangements they need, what is the implication from your research? I definitely think a big one is to ask more for sure. I really remember vividly when my first daughter was born in Canada, of all places, where they have pretty good benefits. And I think at the time it was like both parents get a year off, but now it's like a year and a half, I think, split between the two parents. So you're entitled to pretty good rental benefits in Canada. And yet my husband was so paranoid about asking for them. There was something he was actually entitled to. That's the crazy thing. He was entitled to it, but he was so worried he would be judged for asking for this thing that he was entitled to, partly because his boss would make little comments about it. And so there was this element that you know she was kind of shaping his idea of how she was going to judge him if he did ask. But it's hard to come up with a really good sort of policy answer. So you can say like, ask more, don't worry so much about asking, you know, ask for the things that you are entitled to, right? The fact that we wouldn't ask for things that we're entitled to, to me, is really problematic. But then there's been work, for example, comparing places that make parental leave mandatory to try to get around this problem. So you could say like, okay, people hate asking. They're not getting benefits they're entitled to. So let's fix that by just giving everyone parental benefits. You have a kid, you take it off, right? There's no... It's just the default. You don't even have to ask for it. One of the things that's interesting about that is that they've shown that when they use those policies, more men do take more parental leave, obviously, because it's the default. But then they benefit from that in their careers later on more than women because they tend to use that parental leave to get more work done. So when they've looked at like academics, academics who are forced to take parental leave, right? Women don't actually produce anything during that parental leave or not anymore besides the baby. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> definitely definitely should clarify that anything career wise more than they ordinarily would but men actually get a bump in productivity where they publish more papers and so i guess my point being it seems like this is a complex i mean clearly this is a complex kind of issue that even playing around with different policies that try to get around some of these issues about asking don't always you know they have these unintended consequences that we don't always anticipate it's very, very true. It is interesting, though, you're saying about the men. My experience is that men, I mean, generalizing here, usually, forgive me, but men tend to be less comfortable about asking for flexible working than women. I'm talking 
from my experience of the UK, because in the UK, all women are expected to take a significant number of months off with maternity leave. And for men, they have the right to do it too, through the shared parental leave policy, which is similar. It's like maternity leave for men that can be shared between men and women. But because it's less the normal thing, there is that fear of asking. But actually, your research is telling us, actually, just ask because you're less likely to be judged harsh and you're less likely to be told no um, than you think. I love that message. I love that just go and do it type message. But obviously, you also will get rejected potentially. You're less likely to be rejected, but you could get rejected. So you don't discuss this in your book, I don't think. But can you learn to be rejected? Is it something that will you grow a tough skin? Is there something like that or or not? I think so. You know, I think it would be great if people could get more comfortable with rejection. I think it would make people feel more comfortable saying no in situations where they need to. And it would make us feel more comfortable asking for things, you know, because we don't take rejection so hard. And I think one of the big things that shapes our emotions and kind of our emotional reaction to things is the framing. So how are we framing what's happening? And when we get a no, you know, we tend to frame it in this kind of global, personal way, right? We hear a no and we think it's no to me personally, right? It's a rejection of our relationship of whoever the person is I have a relationship with. And we think of it as no forever, right? Like, oh, this is an unhelpful person or they're completely against me taking this leave or whatever it is. But more often than not, no's are circumstantial. It's someone saying no because they don't have the resources in the moment because they're worried about a particular project, you know, that they want you to finish because for whatever reason in that moment, they just couldn't agree, right? They couldn't say yes to that request. And I think framing it that way, you know, makes it clear that it's not about you. It's not about the relationship. And it also gives you the freedom to go back and ask again. You know, if we catastrophize no's in this way where it's like, oh my God, it's this no is so terrible right? Then once we get it, there's no way we're going to go back and ask again. But in fact, we actually have research showing that if you go back and ask the same person for something again, they're a little bit more likely to do it, to say yes, than even if they said no the first time, because they feel so bad about having said no the first time, because it was circumstantial. Their hands were tied. They just couldn't do that. And they felt guilty. And so the next time you ask them, they're like, okay, I feel so bad. I can't keep saying no to this person. I'll, I'll go ahead and say yes this time. But if you're so worried about no and you frame it as this, you know, forever no, then you'll never go back and find out that actually that person was happy to do it at another time later on, you know. So interesting. And how did your own life change as a result of that research? Was there something that you've really changed your own practice? I definitely asked more. I mean, that's for sure, because I would feel like a hypocrite if I didn't. And it, the funny thing is, it doesn't make it, for me, it doesn't make it easier to ask. Like, it's still very hard to ask. I still doubt myself. I still have a moment where I'm like, I don't know. But I do know that if I do ask, someone's more likely to say yes than I think. And if they say no, it's not as big of a deal. And so I remind myself of those things. And if I feel like it's worth it, I definitely ask more. I talk in the book, you know, about the story where my husband and I, it's like these little moments where it's like, so it actually made a huge difference, right? My husband and I were on like a summer holiday weekend trip and we had the two little kids in the backseat and we got a screw in our tire and it was a holiday weekend. And so, you know, we didn't know where we were going to find a garage. The one garage we found had closed like a couple hours or an hour before. 
And we still decided to drive by and just see if maybe the hours were wrong because there was nothing else around. And we got there and the mechanic was still there in the garage, but the hours on the door said that they were closed. And so my husband rolls out the window and was like, hey, are you closed? And the mechanic was like, yep. And so my husband rolls out the window and is like about to go. And I was like, oh my God, this is a time where we should just ask. Like, it's just a screw. And so he rolled down the window again and he was like, we just have a screw in our tire. You know, would you mind just patching it up? And the mechanic was so warm and helpful and happy to do that. It took him like five minutes. You know, he pulls out the screw, puts that gooey stuff they put in tires. And we were on our way in like, Five, 10 minutes when it could have been a huge hassle with two little kids on a hot summer day, you know, in the back seat with a flat tire. And all because we went ahead and asked. And I feel like those little moments actually could save so many headaches. And in the end, the mechanic also was so happy to help. You could tell like he felt good about helping us out. And, you know, my husband like handed him a 20 and was like, hey, buy yourself a whiskey. Thanks so much. <laughs> Cause he wouldn't charge us or anything. But we still wanted to like thank him for his time and not just take advantage of it. But it was one of those moments where I'm so glad that we went ahead and asked. And it's in those moments where you actually can create an interaction between both people where everyone walks away happy when we worry that like by asking for things like that, we're putting the other person out or you know, it's going to be like this contentious kind of request or something. Okay. And is there something that you can do to increase the chances of the person who you're asking saying yes? So you obviously had to small kids in the background, which I can recommend people, especially in the UK, people tend to be so helpful when you are have small kids with you, I'm sure in the US as well. But is there something else that you can do aside from bringing along your small kids to increase the chances of people saying yes? Yeah, I love the idea. I should work that in, like bring small children and... <laughs> <laughs> Well, some things I talk about. So asking in person is hugely more effective than asking, for example, over email and even asking over the phone or Zoom we find in our research. So whenever you can ask in person, it is the most effective way to ask if what you want is a yes. And so if you can't ask in person, which I know a lot of us have restrictions these days, you know, picking up the phone or using Zoom is more effective than email. And so that is, you know, another recommendation is to use if you can't be in person, to use the richest possible medium to ask. And actually, we don't find that video does that much. So it could be Zoom or the phone. If everyone has Zoom fatigue right now, just hearing someone's voice humanizes them enough that you still get that benefit of the nonverbal sort of connection. But that is one of the biggest things that we've seen is the medium through which you ask. Another thing is to ask for advice so that you align the person with you so that you become kind of on the same side. So this is something that we've talked about, you know, researchers have talked about in negotiations for a long time. Zoe Chance has an influence book, Influences Your Superpower, and she calls it the magic question. But it's basically asking the other person for advice to get the thing that you want. So you say something like, you know, let's say you're asking for like a promotion. You say, my goal is to get a promotion. What would it take for you to get me that? What would it take to get me there? And now you're not just going to your boss and saying, Hey, I'd like a promotion. There are cases where that makes sense. You know, I've done X, Y, and Z, and I'd really like, but a lot of people feel more comfortable asking in this way where it's really kind of a collaborative thing where it's, This is what I want. What do you think it will take to get there? Like, give me some advice on how I can get this thing. And then again, it aligns the other person with your on your side. And now you're working together and they can say, well, here's what I would want to see. 
And so you could do those things and come back and say, okay, we talked about this. I did these things. Here we go. So that is another suggestion. It's mm, a really practical thing. Let's turn it on its head though. So quite often the people that are listening to this podcast will be feeling that they say yes slightly too often exactly because of the things that you've described, that we're just primed to say yes and we're also wanting to be helpful and so on and so forth. Is there something that you can do to prevent yourself from saying yes too often? Yeah. So the funny thing is, I feel like I get asked about how to ask for things to get a yes and then also how to say no to those things. And the answers are very sort of mirrors of each other, right? So if you're going to ask for someone for something and you really want that yes, asking in person and having them give you an answer right there is the most effective way. Although you might not always want to do it that way. If someone's asking you for something, right? You want to create more space and time to be able to come up with a way to say no. So if they're asking in person, you don't want to say yes there in person, right? You want to say something like, let me think about it. So you're not saying yes or no in the moment. People hate saying no. So you don't have to say no in the moment. But you also don't have to say yes, right? So you say, let me think about it. Will you follow up over email, for example? And now, again, email is the least effective for asking. It's the easiest to say no to, which is why it's the you know least effective for asking. But if you can get someone to email you, you can take your time to think about, you know, how do I want to let this person down? I want to think and be more mindful about whether I say yes or no. I don't want to just say because someone's you know in my office, for example. So what makes it so hard to say no is that you feel like many of the things we talked about before, you feel like you might damage the relationship. There's this kind of social risk, right? You don't want to offend the other person. You don't want to hurt the other person. As we said, we default to being nice and warm and friendly, and we don't like kind of not being that. And so giving yourself time to come up with the words to let someone down lets you be all those things. It lets you say, I still value you, you know, if you want to say that, you know, to make it clear that it's not about the person, it's not about the relationship. But it's circumstantial, just like we talked about. So, like, I just can't do this right now. You know, I'm sorry. Or I just can't do this for whatever reason you want to say. I think the other helpful things are the way you frame saying no, that each time you say yes to something, you are by default saying no to something else. Right. And so, if you think about it that way, you want to be mindful of the things you say yes to because they are going to take up time that you could spend doing things for other people. The other thing is that in some cases, you know, the people who are asking are getting benefits that other people who aren't asking aren't getting just because they're not asking. So we see this, for example, you know, as I mentioned, I'm a professor and I get students asking for like great adjustments, right? If I just gave great adjustments to every student who asked for it, there's plenty of students, I'm sure, who had like an error in their marking or, you know, worked just as hard who isn't asking and they're not getting it. So by saying yes to one person, I'm creating inequities amongst the group. So again, that's another reason that's not just selfish to sort of be mindful of what you say yes and no to. I'm taking lots of notes myself. I think that's extremely fascinating. I'm interested in where you stand on the debate between working from home to going to the office. As some people say that women are going to be disadvantaged in their career progression because they're likely to stay working from home, given the option compared to many men who will go back to the office. What are your thoughts on that? Yeah, again, I think this is something that's complicated, right? Because on the one hand, having the flexibility to go remote and have a more flexible schedule is going to help a lot of women stay on track 
in certain careers, right? Where they might actually be, you know, on track to progress to a certain promotion or, you know, in my case to tenure or something like that, or to make partner or whatever it is you're going for. If you get off that track, right? Because you have kids or because you just need something more flexible, it's harder to get back on. And so having remote options can often help people stay. You know, there are cases, I think, where that is beneficial to women who don't want to get off their track. At the same time, I mean, I definitely do worry knowing what I know about the influence we have in person compared to remotely and the fact that Zoom and the phone don't fully make up that gap, right? I do worry about situations where you get, you know, inequities in who's at home, who's working remotely, and who is actually in the office there who can ask for things in person, you know, who can sway conversations in person, who can have those informal, you know, hallway meetings that then go on to inform the formal meeting that all the remote people join in for. And so I do worry about this potential inequity that could be set up. I think what needs to happen, you know, there's a lot of advice that's given to the people working remotely, like how not to be left behind, you know. And I just think that it's just as important for organizations to really manage it really carefully to make sure that they're not doing things like saying yes to people who are asking for things in person more than they are to people who are like sending emails and asking for things remotely, right? To set up clear criteria for things like promotions, to make sure that meetings that are hybrid are managed in a way that all the voices are included, not just the people who are there, to make sure they're getting feedback from people who are working remotely. And so I think it comes with risk. You know, I wouldn't discount that. But I also think there are some benefits. And I think that, you know, organizations just really have to manage it to make sure that the, you know, the benefits outweigh the risks. Agreed. Um, The other thing that I was really curious about when reading your book was this idea that actually you have more influence than you think as a boss. And many of our listeners will be bosses and will be leading teams. And the, the one thing I've walked away with is that your behaviors are much, much more influential than you think. And that's obviously a very bad thing. I think you give the example of someone asking to do a slightly inappropriate thing. I can't remember what it was, but something slightly sexualized, but borderline. But people don't dare say no to that because you're the superior. You being a superior is much more powerful. Can you explain the dynamic that is happening there and why that's happening? Yeah. So this is one of my colleagues uses this phrase, when you're in power, your whisper sounds like a shout. So basically, when you're in a position of power, as you said, people don't sort of dare say no to you, or at least not nearly as much as if you're you know, of equal power. The example that you were referring to is a basketball coach who had his players do strip free throws. So each time they missed a basket, they had to take off an article of clothing and there were a couple players who, you know, did the worst and wound up just running up and down the court totally naked and wound up suing the school and the coach after the fact and saying, you know, the coach would say things, you know, throughout this sort of suit in the media that covered it. Like, I was just trying to have some fun. No one was forced to do this. They clearly could have said no. Right. And then you have the player saying, like, this is our coach. We clearly could not have said no. Right. You don't say no to your coach. And I think this person was incredibly irresponsible in the way he he handled his power. But I do think it's plausible that people in power could genuinely think, well, if you don't want to do it, you can just say no, right? They aren't aware sort of of the fact that other people don't feel as comfortable saying no as they might feel in a position of power. Like when you're in a position of power, you feel like you have 
the sort of ability to say no to things you don't want to do, right? You feel like you can take action in situations where there's some ambiguity. And at the same time, you don't need to take people's perspectives as much. You don't kind of obsess about how other people are taking your words or the things that you're saying because you just don't need to be, right? It's not as important if you're the one in power to make sure that, you know, so and so in that meeting didn't take something that you said the wrong way because that person doesn't have control over, you know, your pay and your promotions and things like that. And so that means that every little thing you say in a position of power means that much more to the people around you and you're not monitoring what you say as much. So you may just throw things out. And I think that's part of what was happening with uh, my husband's boss when he was worried about asking for, you know, the parental leave he was entitled to is that as much as, of course, she's like, of course, you're entitled to it. Like, you know, formally, I'm never going to say it, but she would still make little comments that she might not have even realized, you know, were affecting his decisions about whether or not to ask or his sort of comfort level with asking for those things. And I think it's quite plausible that that's what was going on as she was saying things without thinking about it, assuming, you know, he'll do what he wants. It doesn't matter what I say. When in fact, that was getting in his head and really kind of, you know, resonating. And you are a boss, obviously, of graduate students and colleagues. What, if anything, have you changed in your behavior once you've realized this? Yeah, you know, it's funny. I've been, since writing the book, I've been even more aware of this. And I've started to notice it in meetings. So I, it's kind of hard for me to believe that I am now one of the most senior people in our faculty meetings that we have. We have a lot of junior faculty. And at first, you know, I felt like I needed to prove why I was there. I think a lot of people feel this way as they make it up in the ranks and they're promoted. They're like, you know, I've got to have a great idea. When we have a discussion, I have to have the answer. I have to be able to explain something. I have to, you know, you're kind of showing like, I deserve to be here. When in fact, if you're in that position of power, when you are a senior colleague or you are a boss, as soon as you come up with your great idea or your answer or whatever, everybody else assumes that is the answer. And then they kind of stop talking. Or if they had a different perspective, they state it a little less assertively or they kind of alter it to fit what you said. And so I've had to stop this impulse I have where we have a decision to make, you know, and we're going around the table. And I have a strong opinion and I feel like I should say it. You know, it's my job as a senior person to like say the opinion and tell everyone the answer. I've had to stop myself from doing that and let everybody else speak first. And then sometimes they change my mind, you know, and I would have never gotten to that place if I had just blurted out and like proven why I deserve to be there. It's so true. It is so true. We use an approach called thinking environment in some of our sessions. You might have heard of it, but it really forces you to listen to everyone in a round. I think you do need to design your environment through things like that in order to circumvent that automatic power that you have as a boss. But I think also some people who have been newly promoted, actually, like you say, just understanding you don't have to worry about people thinking that you are in charge because they will listen to you more just because of the title you have. So relax. You don't need to prove yourself. I like that. Very interesting. Is there anything else that you would want our listeners to think about or to know in terms of influencing that maybe they don't know yet and that's relevant particularly for them progressing their careers as parents no worries if nothing comes to mind but i just want to make sure i ask the question i don't know particularly about their role as parents i think the only thing that comes to mind and it's not i don't know if it would be relevant enough would be like the value of 
giving compliments and expressing gratitude and things like that. Do you want me to talk about that or is that? Yes, please. Yes, please. You know what? Actually, so this reminds me, I didn't actually spot it in my notes when I looked through the book again today, but I read your book just before Christmas. And as a result of your book, I decided not to write Christmas cards, but actually to write letters to a few people that just touched my life during that year. Yeah, it was really actually really meaningful exercise and much more meaningful than writing my signature on hundreds of Christmas cards. So thank you for the inspiration. Yeah, that's so, oh my gosh, that's so amazing to hear. Thank you for sharing that. Yeah, I think, you know, when people hear influence, they're thinking of like the times you're trying to get someone to do something for you or persuade them of your perspective. But the way I think about influence is all these little interactions. And one of the most basic and I think meaningful to people is expressing gratitude. I think expressing gratitude, right? The research shows that we worry that we're going to be awkward. We worry that, you know, the other person is going to feel weird, that we're not going to come up with the perfect words to express what they really mean. And so we kind of overthink it and hold back from expressing gratitude to people who we might think about regularly and have appreciated in a huge way, but we've just never really said it to them. But in fact, when researchers have had people write gratitude letters to people that they really appreciated in their lives and guess how good those letters would make someone else feel, we underestimate how much those letters mean to the people who receive them and how little they care about how articulately we expressed our gratitude. They just want to hear that they meant something to us and that we appreciate them. And it means so much more than we realize. Because of the topic of the podcast, I'll just mention in my book when I was writing the acknowledgments, I noticed that a lot of people who I know are parents hadn't thanked their childcare workers. And so it was really important to me to put an acknowledgement to all the childcare workers who had helped take care of my kids when I was writing the book because it really meant everything to me. The fact that I could kind of write uninterrupted, not kind of worrying about a frantic call or you know all the kinds of things that you worry about with your kids. The fact that I could actually just zone out and totally trust that my kids were in safe hands and just write is really what allowed me to do the book pre-pandemic. Then everything just went to hell. But yeah, <laughs> so I wanted to make sure to express that gratitude. And since, you know, I've signed some books and said, like, you're part of the reason I was even able to do this and given it to some of the daycare workers. You cannot put into words how precious it is to have fantastic people who you can 100% trust with your for your child. And actually, you're so right. I have never expressed my gratitude in, in that way. You know, you bring chocolates or gifts, but actually telling them the impact, I think is a really powerful thing. Yeah. Hmm. I also remember from that research piece is actually the letters that were written to people that were they didn't know that well. I think I might have made this up, but I think there's something about just saying really how to feel. We should have released this on Valentine's Day. This is getting quite cheesy, but you know, yeah. it's about <laughs> it's about saying what you really feel to people whom you might not be in a regular contact with, who might not be the closest of your your friends and allies. Yeah. So it could be people you don't see every day. You know, We had another separate study where we had people give either just complete strangers and many of our studies compliments. So just finding something they appreciated about the other person and just telling them. And then we actually had them give the other person a survey to fill out, <laughs> <laughs> which they then gave to us and never got to see. 
but saying, you know, how much they appreciated getting that compliment. And we found even with total strangers and other researchers have found with even like acquaintances and coworkers and things that just simple compliments, you know, I respect you in this way. I appreciate this thing that you do. Or, you know, we even find really simple things like I just like your shirt, right? They make people feel so much better than we think. And if you think about it from the other side, right? Like someone gives you a compliment and it just can make you feel warm and fuzzy for hours, right? It can make your whole day. But we forget that when we're on the other side. Again, because we worry, oh, I'm going to say it you know, awkwardly. They're going to be annoyed. We actually find that people think that expressing these things will annoy people. But people are not annoyed. They're quite happy you know, to hear nice things about themselves. Very true. Very true. That's such a lovely endpoint to come to um, with the podcast. I would like to finish on just asking you if someone is listening to this and wants to ask a colleague or a boss for something, what are three practical things they could do to ask someone in a way tomorrow to increase their chances of having a yes? Yeah. So I'd say one, as we talked about, ask in person. If you can't ask in person, ask through a richer medium, like picking up the phone or scheduling a Zoom call. Asking over email is the least effective way to ask. And yet we forget that when we're the ones asking. We think, oh, if I lay it on my reasons in an email, like they'll definitely be convinced. But so much more of how we make decisions about whether to do something for someone is about that human connection. And so you want to create that human connection. And using this sort of magic question that Zoe Chance talks about or this asking for advice approach. So asking, you know, this is what I'm looking for. Right. I'm trying to get a promotion, for example. I'd really like to be able to work flexibly, whatever it is. You know, what would it take for that to work for you and bringing them kind of on your side? And then I'd add a third thing, which is to ask with a presumption of them saying yes. Right. We tend to overestimate how likely people are to say no. And because of that, we do this thing where we negotiate with ourselves before we negotiate with the other person. Right. We say, Oh, this person will definitely never agree to that. And so we ask for half or even less, you know. In so many situations, we'd be surprised at what people are willing to agree to. And so if you kind of presume like, no, there's a good chance that person's going to say yes. So ask what you really want or need. Let them say, actually, you know, I can't give you that, but maybe something a little less. Don't do it to yourself before you even ask. Mm. Excellent advice. Excellent advice, Vanessa. Where can people find out more about you? Where can they buy the book? And what's the book called again? Sure. So the book is You Have More Influence Than You Think. You should be able to buy it anywhere. It's in most places where books are sold. And my website is Vanessa Bonds. That's B-O-H-N-S dot com. And there you can find places to buy the book. You can find essays I've written and connect with me on social media. Fantastic. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening today. I am sure you found Vanessa as interesting as I did. If this has been helpful to you in any way, then can you please support us by sharing this with a friend? And thank you to everyone who's done it already. It's been really lovely to see listening numbers triple over the last few months with your help. But there are a couple of dream guests of mine, for example, Brené Brown, that I would love to have on the show, but they will need even higher listening numbers for them to agree to come on. So if it's been helpful, then please send a link to this episode to some of your friends. You can also share it on social media. Um, thank you so much to Katie Litster and Rosie Drake, who've done that last month. Really appreciate it. Have a lovely rest of the week and thank you for listening.